If you'll stand with me for the reading of Scripture, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, Pray to your Father who is, in, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then at verse 16, And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in heaven, who who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. I'll pray. I again thank you, Lord Jesus, for um, this revelation of yourself, and we thank you for your enabling God to live true to what you have revealed here for us. And so we just look to you that we would hear your voice and we would respond to your initiative within us that these things, Lord, would be true by your power. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming up on Christmas, and next Sunday I um, will give more of a Christmas message. But for me, I just, you know, er everything is about Jesus, and so one way or another it's about Christmas, right? Um, And here um, on this next chapter, the second of three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now he's talking about outward expressions of piety or religiosity. Three things that he mentions that we're going to look at this morning. The first is giving, and the second is prayer, and the third is fasting. If I were, or somebody else were to ask you, are you religious? I wonder how you would answer that question. Are you religious? For most people that were outside um, the evangelical community, they would say, well, if you go to church on Sunday, you're religious. Um, If you own a Bible and read it on occasion, you're religious. But a lot of evangelicals, and I grew up hearing this and, and, and repeating it, a lot of evangelicals would say, no, I am not religious. They would say, I have a relationship, not a religion. Yes, I go to church. Yes, I own a Bible and read it. 
but that doesn't make me religious. And so they make a dichotomy between religion and relationship. But that really is a false dichotomy because the New Testament does speak about the followers of Christ being religious. Yes, we have a relationship, and that relationship ought to work itself out in ways that are what the world would say are religious. James, for example, says, This is true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, that you visit orphans and widows in their distress, and that you keep oneself yourself unstained by the world. So if you make an effort to care for orphans and widows and to keep yourself unstained by the world, James would say that is religion. You are religious. We also know that Jesus said that if you visit those who are in prison, that that is an expression of religion. For us as Christians, if we love one another, that is an expression of religion. And here, in this chapter of the introduction of chapter 6, he, Jesus is assuming that his disciples, those people who follow him, will give, pray, and, um, and fast. And those are expressions of religion. Now, this is what we understand, when we, what we mean when we say we, are, are, we have a relationship and not a religion. What we mean is, is that it's our religion, the outward things that we do, are not for the sake of, a relation, of getting a relationship with God or making ourselves approved to God. But those outward things we do are an expression of a relationship with God. But we need to be careful, I think, because if we say to an unbeliever, I am not religious, they may hear the wrong thing. They may hear us as saying that we are irreligious, that we have no regard for things that religious people regard as important. And that wouldn't be true. But the significant thing for us is that our outward displays of religion ought to be um, compelled by the inward reality of a personal relationship with Jesus. And if that, doesn't, if that personal relationship with Christ does not result in outward practice, then you have to wonder, is there truly a relationship with Christ? We, in the hill country, we've got all these different kinds of trees and many varieties of oaks, the two dominant ones being the live oak tree and the Spanish oak. I prefer the Spanish oak at this time of year because they, they turn color, and so it gives some color in the hill country. We've had on our property at his hill some massive, old, 100-year-old-plus um, Spanish oak trees that just overnight just uprooted. And you go, how did that happen? That beautiful old oak tree, healthy, but it wasn't healthy. And the thing that all these Spanish oak trees have in common is that they are all rotting from the inside, every one of them. And so sooner or later, they just, windstorm comes, and this beautiful oak that you thought was healthy and strong and vibrant just topples to the ground because it's been rotting from the inside. They all do. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, that you can have the outward display of religion without the inner reality, and you are rotting on the inside. And that outward display means nothing to God because He sees in the secret place. He can look at the core 
and see what's going on. And when the core is unhealthy, but there's the outward displays, it is hypocrisy. And it's not true religion. This gets to the issue of being perfect. Because perfection, again, is the idea of being complete, of, of being full. There's nothing lacking, that everything is functioning as it should. The root word integer means to be intact or to be entire. I came across a, an article that Charles um, Swindoll recently wrote, and he says, integrity keeps a person from being divided. That is duplicity. And integrity keeps a person from pretending, and that is hypocrisy. And then he goes on and says, the older you become, the better you will get at faking it, and the more dangerous you become. And that's a good word. The older we get, we can actually, the core, like that Spanish oak, can be rotting more and more. And the outward expressions of religiosity are there. We show up on church on Sunday. We have our Bibles. And everything looks good. We can contribute at Christmas time and do these things. Everything looks good. But we're faking it. And on the inside, God sees the reality of what's really there. And so this is what Jesus is speaking to when he says, don't let the external be the only reality, but there should be the internal. And so when it comes to giving and praying and fasting, Jesus assumes that these are realities in every believer's life. Every believer is a giver. Every believer is someone who prays. And every believer fasts. He's assuming these things are true. So that's why he says, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He's not saying beware of practicing your righteousness. Righteousness should be practiced. Righteousness, in other words, should be on display. It was in Daniel's life. Nobody had any question that Daniel was a righteous man. He looked like a righteous man. And as they examined his, his life under a microscope, they could find no incongruity. They could find no inconsistencies in his life. Daniel was true. He was one in every aspect of his life. He wasn't faithful in one area and unfaithful in another. But there was integrity across the whole span of, of his life. So Jesus is not saying, beware of practicing your righteousness. He's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness for the sake of being noticed by men. That's the problem. If that's what's motivating you, not a relationship with God, but what other people think of you, then you already have your reward. That's the only reward you're ever going to get is what other people think of you. So then he gives three specific examples of how our righteousness is practiced. This is not exhaustive. These are not the only ways that we practice our righteousness. But these are three things that Jesus assumes will be true in every believer's life. First is giving. When therefore you tithe. Is that what it says? No. So there's no mention here of tithing. When therefore you give alms. Now again, this is a new constitution, a new government that Jesus is speaking of. The Jews would have expected, they were told they were supposed to tithe. And that was all set in stone for them how much they were to tithe and how often. 
This is not tithing. This is something in addition to that. This is, these are acts of generosity that, that go beyond what are required of you. These are the things that would be moved by, where you're moved by your heart and not because of a law. It is expected that Christians be giving people, generous people, moved by their heart and not just by the law. This is the way God is. There is a teaching that um, God, in being a, a, a whole being and not having any need, he is not ever compelled by what he sees outside of him. And so this is where the doctrine of, um, part of the Calvinist doctrine that, that, um, of unconditional election comes from, the idea is, is that God's electing you is not conditioned on anything that he sees in you. Okay? Then they, but see, the problem with that teaching is, it's as though God is not moved by anything. So your need does not move God. He just willy-nilly decides who he's going to save. And it has nothing to do with you. But then I think about the the story that Jesus gave of the Good Samaritan. Three men walked by that guy who had been beaten and left to a, to a pulp. Bleeding pulp. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And the priest and the Levite walk by, and they are unmoved. The Samaritan walks by, and he is moved. Those, they were not moved, as it were, by what they saw, the Samaritan was moved by what was in him. They all saw the same thing. But what moved the Samaritan was what was in him. And he was compelled by who he was to help this man. He didn't care who he was. The, man, the, the Samaritan was compelled by something inside him to, to show mercy and compassion for this man. We all have needy people around us is the point. Why are some people moved and others aren't by the same circumstances? We see the same person standing there with a sign saying, help. And some people help and others don't. We all see the same guy. Why is one person, will one person act and another not? It's not because of what they see, but it's because of what is in them. And Jesus is saying, his people will be people whose hearts have been so changed that they are now, they no longer have hearts of stone. They no longer give because it's required, because it is, it is in law that you have to give because it's a tithe. Now there is a giving heart in them. They are looking for opportunities to give. They are easily moved to give. Nobody has to tell them. Nobody has to spur them on. If anything, you have to hold them back. This is what Paul found when he was asking for donations. And he came to one group of people, and they were the poorest people that Paul knew. And they begged him for the opportunity to give. And Paul finally gave in and said, hey, people, you're the last ones that should be giving. You have nothing. And they said, but you don't understand. We want to give. We must give. And Paul gave in and let them give. There was an inner compulsion. That's true religion. A religion that is, is motivated from within. And it is assumed that God's people will be people who give that way. 
from an inner compulsion where there is a, a compassion and a mercy and a grace that is driving them, and therefore they give. When, therefore, you give alms. It is assumed that Christians will be like this. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. That's all the honor they'll ever get. The end of verse 2. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give alms, again, the assumption is that Christians will be generous giving people. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, how do you do that? Well, clearly it's a metaphor. I mean, how, how do you get your wallet out and get money out of it without using two hands? How do you write a check without using both hands? It's just a metaphor saying, don't be too calculating and, and, and do everything you can to keep it anonymous. Not for fanfare. You can't even always give anonymously. Somebody is typically going to know. But as much as you can, give without anyone knowing about it. I don't have, just so that you might wonder, I have no idea who gives what in this church. I don't want to know, don't care to know, and nobody's ever tried to inform me, and I'd like it to keep it that way. We get a monthly statement. Um, um, every month, Israel gives us a, a, the monthly financial statement. It doesn't have names on there, or who gave what. It just says, this is what came in, this is what our expenses were, that kind of thing. It's just a financial statement without anybody's names on it. I love it that way. Years ago, a gentleman here in the church is with the Lord now. A lot of us um, would have known him, Leonard Franklin. Leonard is a very giving man, and he didn't want anybody to know. And one time he took me out for lunch and in, in comfort, drove out to comfort. We were having lunch, and it was about this time of year. And he said, Charlie, um, I have some Christmas gifts that I want to give, and I don't want anybody to know where they're coming from, so I'm going to give it to you to disperse. I got to be Santa Claus. What a blessing. And he had had these, these envelopes for, with different people, and he had cash in these envelopes, and different names on them. Is this is who I want to go, this person, this person, this person. And he says, don't tell anybody where it ever came from. So I never did until after he died. And, um, but, I would have, but that's the spirit of what Jesus is talking about. It was not, he wasn't able to get the money to them. And so he tried to do it in a way that nobody else would know what was going on. And he swore me to secrecy for as long as he was alive. And so now I'm telling on him. And I'm robbing him of his glory in heaven. <laughs> this is what the Lord is saying to do. Don't advertise it. Don't put, pat yourself on the back. And certainly don't look for anybody else to pat you on the back. As much as possible, give without fanfare. Be generous and yet be anonymous. And the anonymity is because it's not about you. You're giving because someone is compelling you. There is something, someone in you compelling you to give. So why should you get the attention? You weren't like this before you were saved. This is not in order to gain anybody's favor. But you are simply being compelled from within by God. So why do you need the favor? Why do you need the recognition for it? It's all because of God. 
your Father who sees in secret will repay you. It's my conviction that there is nothing that Jesus would ever tell us to do that is not true of himself. Everything, every imperative of Scripture is simply a reflection of what is true of God himself. And that is true with this first of the three expressions of righteousness. God is a giving God. He is not stingy. He is not a hoarder. He is not cold and calculating. He is generous, as it were, to a fault. <laughs> if you could fault God with anything, you would have to fault him with being too generous, with being too kind, too merciful, too gracious. It's amazing how generous our God is. And that's what he is motivating in each of us. Secondly, prayer. When you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order that they may be seen by men. These are amazing people, these, these Pharisees, I tell you. Um, the giving, how, how, how were they not giving in secret? What were they actually doing? Some historians think that, that every synagogue, as well as the temple, had these collection boxes. And the collection box had a, had a, a, a tin funnel that, you could, that would direct the money down into the box. And so one of the things they think that these Pharisees were doing is that before they would give, they would stop by the bank and they would have their big coins um, um, exchanged for as many small coins as they could get. And so instead of putting in a dollar coin, they'd put in a hundred pennies. And so they would get a bag just full of pennies. And then they'd stand where you can't see how much they're, they're dumping in. All you can hear is the money going, da 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 And everybody's going, whoa, how much money? Because you can just ding, 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 and the money is just keeps pouring in. And there, so everybody thinks the guy is giving thousands of dollars when he's just given thousands of pennies. Oh, see, it's for recognition. The same thing for the praying. They prayed three times a day. Well, they would, they would sometimes calculate what time of day is it? Is it time to pray? And they would time their walks so that they would be praying in the middle of a street or on a street corner. And they would just stop the traffic because it's time to pray. And everybody's going, oh, what pious, religious, righteous people. Far from it. They're rotten at the core. It was all for what people would think. All to be seen by men. And again, verse 5, the end of the verse, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, and again, the assumption is Christians pray. This makes you religious. Okay? It's not that we have no religion. It's the religion doesn't define us. The religion is an expression of our relationship. When you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will, rep will repay you. Shut the door. Go into your bedroom, go into your closet, and close the door. And don't take your phone with you. And turn off the radio and just listen. And don't feel like you have to do all the talking. God talks about, you weary me with all your words. 
that we don't listen in God's presence. I read an article recently on talking about Christian meditation and the distinctiveness of it. And the author was saying how during COVID, the levels of anxiety have actually increased, not decreased. When we have, we're isolated in our homes, not so much here in Texas, but all over the world. People can't even go outside. And so they have all this alone time, and the anxiety is going through the roof. And the author said it's for the same reason that it's hard to fall asleep at night for most people. It's not because anxiety increases at night. It's because it's quieter at night, and the anxiety that you've been living with all day long is now rising to the surface. And so it's not that COVID has caused an increase in anxiety. It's the quietness and the isolation that COVID has induced is causing people to see the anxiety that's been ruling their lives for all this time. There's hardly a better antidote than getting quiet with God. Truly quiet with God and learning to listen to Him. Because prayer is not just stating our requests, but it is a relationship. It is speaking as well as listening. It is a conversation a relationship expressed between us and God. It's not just rote. It's not memorized prayers. But it's being in the presence of God. Being quiet before Him. Speaking as where our hearts are prompted by Him to speak. But listening because God loves us and has brought us into a relationship with Him. Truly, the prayers of a Christian are different than anyone else's. Because no unbeliever can pray from a relationship with God. We pray from a relationship, because of a relationship. And we learn to listen to Him. But we need a quiet place. That Christian movie that came out a few years ago, The War Room. Man, wasn't that a great movie? Where that dear old saint, she had that closet where she would just go down there on her knees and she'd have prayer requests on the walls, pinned to the walls, and she called it her war room. Quiet place. God who sees in secret sees in those places. Doesn't that make your prayers less effective to pray alone? See, this also gets at the heart of that heresy that the more people pray, that corporate prayer is more efficacious than individual private prayer. That is heresy. There is nothing in the Bible that would say corporate prayer is prayer more likely to be heard and answered by God. If that were true, why is Jesus saying, go to your closet and shut the door? God sees in the secret place. If anything, God's ears are more attuned to that person on his knees in his closet than the person who's praying in a coliseum with 10,000 people. How much of that is truly engaging God, I wonder? God calls us to corporate prayer. I've spoken on this in the past, and I believe it's because not, it does not make our prayers more likely to be heard. It doesn't make them more effectual. But it makes 
But the corporate prayer pleases God because it is an expression of the unity of the body of Christ. And that's why the Spirit compels us to pray corporately. But just as He compels us to pray corporately, make no mistake, He compels us to pray individually, in solitude, by ourselves, us and God. If you can get no other place to pray, and I understand, I know when, when a mom has young children at home, she doesn't even feel like she can go to the bathroom by herself, much less find time to pray by herself. We understand. But in the middle of the night, when you have to wake up and nurse that baby, those are moments that you can talk to God and listen to God. God gives all of us moments where we can talk to him and listen to him. And Christians will do this. When we are praying, when you are praying, verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. What is meaningless repetition? I spent some time on the internet last night, and I googled meaningless repetition on YouTube. And um, it's an interesting thing to put up on YouTube, just meaningless repetition. And most of the videos that pop up are about the rosary beads of the Catholic Church. Quite a few videos. Some were for, saying it's not meaningless repetition. Others were against, saying it is meaningless repetition. But those rosary beads for the Catholics are not unique. Every religion practices prayer every religion. So again, if you say you are not religious, most people would hear you as saying, I don't pray. So be careful by saying you're not religious. People will hear you as saying you don't give, that you don't pray, that you don't fast, and that should not be true. My friend Rick that used to be a missionary to, um, um, to Mongolia, and there were uh, and, the, and the religion is Buddhism. He would say that the Buddhist people, you'd see these old people just sitting in the dirt, spinning this prayer wheel. And, it, and it's just a stick that's got this thing that goes around. They just sit in the dirt and spin and spin and spin and spin. And every revolution is a prayer. And they'll spin that thing thousands of times a day. Thousands of prayers being given to God because they believe that they will be heard and made righteous. They will win heaven by their multitude of prayers. Those rosary beads, I can't say what they mean for everybody, but I think for many Catholics, from what I understand, having talked to many who are former Catholics, that those beads, they don't even know what each bead represents. But each bead represents a separate prayer. And they may, may not even know what those prayers are, but they'll finger those beads. And every time you finger a bead, you're giving a prayer to God. But their heart, is the heart in it? Are those prayers, those rote prayers, even if they've been memorized, are their hearts in it? And if not, it is just meaningless repetition. I found another video, unbelievable, <laughs> scary. Find my notes on this so I get it right. And it was, the repetition was simply the name of Jesus. 
not Catholic rosary beads, not a Buddhist prayer wheel, but the name of Jesus. And there is a video saying, it's called Jesus' Name 1,000 Times. Powerful Miracle Prayer. So I clicked on it. And within about 30 seconds max, the prayer started. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I didn't listen to the whole 23 minutes, but I assume it takes 23 minutes to say Jesus a thousand times. Wow. And it's a powerful miracle prayer. I think Jesus would call that vain repetition. Even his name can be used in vain repetition. Our minds are thought far away. We're not expressing anything to God. We're not talking to him in conversation. It's nothing more than a Christian mantra, which is a mystical form of invocation or incantation. I found another guy, now deceased, Prophet Kim Clement, um, had a whole crowd in an auditorium just chanting over and over again, Jesus, Jesus. It was actually frightening to watch. This is not what Christians do. We don't recite mantras. We don't recite rote prayers. We have a personal relationship with God. It's not that memorized prayers are wrong. He's going to give us the Lord's prayers, we call it, in these verses that I skipped over. We'll come to it another Sunday. But God wants us to talk from our hearts. Is God a praying God? I said that everything that God requires of us is true of God himself. Is God a praying God? Well, Jesus prayed to the, his Father many times. Jesus would pray the same prayer sometimes more than once. So that's not what he means by vain repetition. He prayed three times in the Garden of Eden that this cup would pass from him. He persisted in prayer. He prayed long prayers. John 17 is a long prayer. So persistence in prayer, repetitious of prayer, long prayers, none of those are what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is talking about praying in a way that has nothing to do, is not indicative in the least of a personal relationship with him. God is a triune God. He has been in communication every day of his existence for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in constant communication with each other. How can we expect to be in a relationship with the triune God who is a communicator and not being a praying people? God is in constant communication, and we, for the same reason, are told to pray without ceasing. And then he talks about fasting. Verse 16, the third example that Jesus gives. Again, not exhaustive examples, but three examples of outward righteousness or of religion. Whenever you fast, whenever you fast, not if, whenever. How many Christians practice fasting? We're not told when to practice, how often to do it. We're just, the assumption is you will fast. I personally think, again, 
that this is no one else's business. It's to be in secret. And there is nothing in Scripture that tells us how often to fast or how long to fast. It's a private matter between you and God. But I believe that God regularly communicates to His people it's time to fast. The only question is, will we listen? And if we're never fasting, and again, this is not my business, it's between each of us and God. But if you have a Christian who is never fasting, something is not right in his relationship with God. We don't do this in order to have a relationship, but as an expression of that relationship with him. Whenever you fast. To fast is to go without food. It's always used that way in Scripture. I don't think that there, that means there's the only way you can fast. What, how does this relate to God? Again, every imperative of Scripture relates directly to God and what is true of Him. Does God fast? No. Because God doesn't eat. He doesn't have a stomach. He doesn't eat food. And so God doesn't fast. Well, how does this reflect on him then? See, one of the reasons that we fast is, is so that we would not be in bondage to anything, even food, that we would understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And fasting helps us to remember that we are not to be in bondage to anything, including our natural, earthly, human appetites. God has no appetites. He is never depleted. He is never exhausted. So he is never hungry for anything. Our humanity means with that comes appetite. But the appetite should not rule us. But rather God and his spirit rule and so we fast in part because we don't want to be in bondage. And it may not be just food that I'm in bondage to. And again, we're talking relatively because you have to eat, right? 40 days and you're going to die. And so, so that doesn't prove that you're not in bondage to food to go 40 days and kill yourself. <laughs> we, we have to eat. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, Paul says. but we can still be dominated by our fleshly appetites and not ruled by the Spirit of God. It can be other things. And again, this is where the Spirit of God comes in. The Spirit wants to speak to each of us and said, I have set you free in Christ. Is there any area of your life, we just need to ask God this, God, is there any area of my life where I am under bondage? I know this is not your will for me. You came that I might be free, and I am in bondage. And if it is something like food, then I think God would say, why don't you just take a day and don't eat? It won't kill you. Maybe three, maybe a week. I don't know. I personally doubt God's going to tell you to go 40 days. And if he were to tell you to do that, I know he would tell you, keep your mouth closed about it. And even if it's one day, three days, or a week, it's not for anybody else to know about. You're doing it because God is compelling you. This is something he's putting his finger on. 
And the other benefit of it, not only does it help to break bondage, but it helps you to be undistracted and to be able to concentrate on that time with the Lord where you would be doing something else that you can spend undistracted devotion to the Lord. When I was in high school, there was a, a man and his wife that just had an open house to all the high school kids in the city, it seemed like. And they had a Bible study once or twice a week in their home and fun, loving people to be with and very outgoing, charismatic type of folks. And, and he very theatrically one day announced to us, I'm going to fast for the next two weeks, I think it was, and wait to see what God's going to say to me. Wow, man, we were impressed. I mean, high school kids, we have never heard of anybody that ever fasted for two weeks. Oh, my word. And so we kind of all waited and wondered what God would say to him. And he fasted for the entire two weeks. And when he came out of that fast, he said to us, we're going, what did God say? And with great contrition of heart, he said, God told me he is not impressed. <laughs> and I thought... That man heard from God. He should never have announced it to begin with. I'm going to fast for the next two weeks and see what God has to say to me. should have never announced that. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about not to do. It's between you and God. You and God. There may be something else. Could be TV. Could be the apps on your phone. Something where God wants you to wake up, you're in bondage. And it has become something that takes you away from that undistracted devotion to the Lord. Put it aside. If there's never any time, any occasion of fasting in our lives, that is not the true religion that God wants us to practice. Again, we're not doing these things for the sake of being right with God, but because we want to maintain that pure, undistracted devotion to Him. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. I think we could say this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Yes, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Yes, to keep oneself unstained by the world. But also, to be generous, to be communicating with God, praying, and to be fasting. Another way that this expresses what is true of God, the fasting, is that God is not about self-fulfillment but rather about self-expenditure. The very nature of God is to expend himself, to give himself. The very nature of our humanity is to get, to consume, to constantly be satisfying our appetites. I heard one person comment on, on American appetite one time and said, is there nothing that will satisfy your appetites? Because we are the biggest consumers on the planet. And it's as though we can never be satisfied. And that is the complete opposite of God's heart. And again, I'm not saying that we will never consume anything. It's ridiculous. But we shouldn't be people who are consumed by the need to consume. That's the problem. 
God is not a self-consuming kind of God. He is a self-expending kind of God. And fasting means we stop the consumption. We stop being consumers, as it were. And, we've, and we become free of that, released of that. We realize life is not just about me being satisfied. But life is so much more than that. It's about giving, expending, and not just focusing on our own satisfaction. How free we would be if we could realize that life is not just about us and having our needs met. We're getting other people to meet our needs. We wouldn't even, we not only free ourselves, but we free up everybody in relationship with us because they don't exist any longer to meet my needs. Fasting helps to clarify these things. Righteousness is to be practiced, is the message here. We are religious people, but our righteousness is not practiced before men to be observed and rewarded by men. But it is practiced before men. They ought to see when they see Christians, people who pray, people who give, people who fast. This ought to characterize our life because we are in relationship with, with God and these things characterize his life. We don't do these things because we're religious, but because we have a relationship with God, there is a religiosity about our lives. But it's not about the externals. That's why we're so careful to say, and it's hard, it's, but it's not, a, it's not this, this exclusive dichotomy of I have a relationship, but I am not religious. I have a relationship, therefore I am religious. It's not I have a religion. I do not have a religion. I have a relationship, and therefore I will practice certain religious observances from that relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. And I'll close this in prayer. God, I again thank you um, for just these simple truths. And I thank you that you have revealed them to us, stated them in such a way that it is not about the external performances. It is not about doing certain things in order to obtain or secure your favor. But we live from you before we should live for you. But in living from you, God, we do, Lord, want all that is true of you to be increasingly manifest in our lives. And these practical three things that you've said, we pray, God, would increasingly characterize our lives. Not because we're trying to promote them, not be, certainly because we're trying to advertise self. I pray that these would be just the natural things that well up in our lives because of your spirit's inner compelling with our spirits. We would be a giving, praying, fasting people because of your work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.